we're presenting The New Normal for Managing Medical Office Space, presented by Hollerinder with a few guests. Thanks, Julie, and, and thanks so much to those joining the call for investing some of your time with us today. I'm Joel Swider, and I'm a healthcare real estate attorney at Hollerinder. And today we have a very experienced and distinguished panel here to talk about the new normal for managing medical office space. We at Hall Render have had clients ask uh, for uh, the past year or so guidance about reopening medical office space post lockdown. And the reality is that most of these spaces never truly closed. And so owners and operators of medical office space have really had to learn and implement new procedures on the fly. We're not really concerned as much anymore with you know reopening or getting ready for COVID, but we're dealing with operating in this new reality, which we've called kind of the new normal that we all have to navigate. So our goal in our discussion today is that whatever your role is in this industry, that you will come away with new ideas, fresh perspectives, something that you can apply um, to be more successful in your day-to-day -day role as it relates to COVID preparedness and liability protection. So. Um, I guess at this point, I'd love to, to have our panel introduce themselves. Julie, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and, and your background on this topic? Sure. It's nice uh, nice to be here today. Thanks, everybody, for, for logging on. Uh, my name's Julie Carmichael. I'm a healthcare consultant in Indianapolis. I have a consulting business that I started about six years ago. Um, prior to that, I was the chief strategy officer for Ascension St. Vincent in Indiana, and I had responsibility there um, for all of our real estate and design and construction. So I have uh, practical hands-on experience in this area. And then I work today with health systems and um, private physician practices and get involved in quite a bit of their real estate and uh, medical office uh, issues. So glad to be here. Yeah, well, thanks for being here, Julie. Mark? Yeah, Joel, thanks, uh, thanks to you and thanks to Hall Render for uh, including us on the panel. Really a privilege to be here and appreciate it. So again, my name is Mark Thine. I'm the EVP of Asset Management for Physicians Realty Trust. We are a publicly traded REIT under the ticker symbol DOC, D-O-C. So we also go by DOC REIT a lot of times. Um, so our portfolio today is uh, about $5 billion in healthcare real estate investments located in 36 states across the country. Uh, about 15 million square feet. So it's really been interesting uh, you know, managing our portfolio through the COVID uh, pandemic here uh, nationwide and watching it as we've had different spikes in different regions. So hopefully can bring a little perspective to that. Uh, but day in and day out, my, my role is to lead the operations team as it relates to asset management, property management, leasing and capital construction. Great, well, thanks again, Mark and Ryan. Yeah, thanks for the invite. Uh, my name is Ryan. I'm our senior real estate manager for Providence in the Washington and Montana region, less our uh, big Swedish portfolio over in Seattle. So we're across seven states, um, kind of each area is broken up with a different real estate manager. Um, so today I'll talk about uh, our portfolio uh, across Washington, Montana. It's about 275 properties, uh, mostly MOBs, um, but we have um, uh, office buildings, industrial land, and all sorts of fun gifts that people have donated. Um, so I'll try to talk mostly about the MOB perspective. Um, our, we have a team of property managers at CBRE and Kimley Haygood that are really out um, seeing what 
the differences and implementing all these new best practices for us. So try to talk to some of those um, and what our technicians are seeing. So uh, before this, I was a property manager and broker uh, at Kimberly Haygood in Spokane. Um, I guess that's me. Great. Well, thanks again to, to our panel and for your time and expertise. Um, by the way, if, if those of you listening today enjoy our discussion, we have three additional ways that you can connect with us and continue the discussion on healthcare real estate. Um, first is, is to consider subscribing to our podcast, which is called the Healthcare Real Estate Advisor, and you can find it on the Apple Podcast app or on our website. The second is we publish a monthly newsletter with news and insights related to healthcare real estate. And if you'd like to be added to that list, please reach out to be, me by email, um, jswider at hallrender.com. And third, I wanted to let the group know that uh, we have another of these roundtable discussions similar to this happening on February 25th on healthcare real estate strategy consideration. So it's sort of an offshoot of today's discussion where we'll be talking about the impact of COVID, recent regulatory updates and, and other trends on the broader strategy discussion. So I'm very excited to hear from our panelists. Um, I wanna give one or two quick backdrop uh, notes from a legal perspective because I think that we will find through this discussion that this is really more of a practical issue than a legal one. Um, from a legal perspective, medical office space is really distinguishable from inpatient space in terms of the regulatory environment. So any certified provider or supplier that's subject to survey by Medicare has to comply with strict infection control protocols. Those require, you know, cohorting of positive or negative COVID patients. Um, there's a guidance level on surveys for social distancing and things along those lines. But outside of the inpatient setting and outside of the ASC setting, there's not a licensure or accreditation requirement in, in most states anyway. Um, when it comes to medical office space. And so even though the guidance is there from CDC and CMS and ASHE and the World Health Organization and others, there's no enforcement mechanism in this setting. So in some ways that's a good thing because it means flexibility for landlords. In some ways it's, it's a difficult thing because it means it makes it more difficult to discern a reasonable approach when, there, when there's no requirement. The last thing that I'll say um, on the legal front is we did some research and found that the majority of states at this point have implemented or are advancing serious discussions around liability shield laws. And those generally protect a business owner from COVID liability so long as they act reasonably and, and are not negligent or grossly negligent. So what I'm hoping that we'll come away with from today's discussion is some sense of what is reasonable in this setting so that we can all serve our patients um, while also obviously avoiding liability. So with that as, as background, the first question that I wanna uh, pose to the group is, um, you know, what are hospitals and, and other MOB operators actually doing from a facilities perspective to manage their medical office space? And maybe Ryan, if you could walk me through from the time somebody drives into the parking lot to receive medical care to the time that they leave, what what changes in, in protocols would that patient or visitor encounter? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think my general response um, to this new normal, um, I think what we're finding is um, if the buildings were professionally managed um, and following best practices pre-COVID, um, there's really been minimal impact. I think there was a lot of unknown up front of, oh, no, what else are we going to have to do? 
Um, but I think we found our, our best practices have, have held true through this. Um, we obviously have more coordination, um, more PPE and some extra signage. Um, but when a patient comes in, um, you'll probably see some tents at some of our MOBs uh, for testing facilities. Um, so you might have to find a different parking spot than I guess you're used to. Uh, you'll probably see some signage on the building entrance um, um, and maybe some uh, directional uh, signage on certain doors to enter or not enter. Please wear a mask, social distance. Um, hopefully though, when you walk into our lobby, it's the same friendly face. They'll just have a mask on. Um, you'll probably see furniture spaced out a bit more in our waiting rooms. Um, I think you'll probably see less people in those waiting rooms trying to get patients back to an exam room as quick as possible. Um, and we do have less um, people in our buildings. Um, so it's a much more coordinated effort when vendors need to come on site. Um, our technicians or property managers are meeting them at the front door, escorting them into the facility um, and getting out um, as efficient as they can. Um, but other than that, um, for the most part, I, th I think that's what you're gonna expect to see. And Mark or Julie, did you, I know when we talked earlier, um, you said there were some jurisdictional related items too that you, you know, having a portfolio, for example, Mark, that 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 is in multiple states, um, you know, you might see some variation in that. Any additional thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, certainly it's going to be a, a customized approach based upon the size of the building, location of the building, geographically, climate, things like that. But I guess even taking a step back, you know, it's amazing that I read an article this morning on Axios Healthcare that one year ago today, there were about 2,000 confirmed cases of COVID, and most of which started in China, of course, and there was just a handful in the U.S. So, I mean, what a ways we've come in just one year's time frame. And I'm really proud that, you know, within our company, we sent out our first communication to our healthcare partners around the country in Jan at the end of January of 2020 just about the importance of good hygiene. Um, and, uh, and if you're feeling sick, you know, staying out of medical office buildings. And then, you know, obviously we got into March and, uh, and the, you know, pandemic started spreading a little bit faster and the awareness of what was coming at us uh, increased. And with our, within our team, we formed our own COVID task force at that time. And we developed a 32-page building readiness manual for our property management partners around the country so we could approach this with a customized um, and, uh, and a plan that we could implement all around the country. We also put together a tenant guide uh, for all of our hospital partners, you know, with best practices and whatnot. And it outlined exactly what Ryan just said, you know, all of those kind of uh, COVID practices that we're so used to seeing now um, with the importance of PPE, masks, ingress and egress of the building. And then to your point about jurisdictional, I mean, that was probably one of the biggest challenges that we addressed early on was about screening within buildings and medical office buildings as patients were coming in, who was in charge of that screening? Was it the building owner? Was it the hospital system? Um, and in the case of our portfolio, we partnered with the hospital system and entered into a license agreement to allow them to use common area space in a multi-tenant medical office building uh, or, you know, use a parking lot, um, you know, for screening or now the vaccine administration. Uh, but it definitely varied, you know, region by region. And we've uh, worked with our property management teams across the country to implement those best practices that, that Ryan was outlining a minute ago. 
And Mark, you know, that's a good point too on, on who's doing it. I think if you were to, I'm going to talk strictly from our, our real estate perspective. So our, our property managers and technicians, but um, really it's our clinic managers that are in the buildings and the operations team that have taken on a bulk of um, the changes that need to be implemented because they're there at the front door um, and doing, taking on the temperature screening and those kinds of things. So, um, and then yeah, I also I just, yeah. Yep. I would just add, you know, one, one additional thing we did this summer was to partner with Julie and, uh, and her company in a survey of healthcare consumers in five of our largest markets across the country. And we asked them just about their comfort level of coming back to medical office buildings. Again, to your opening comments, they never really closed, right? We welcomed more people back and the volumes increased. But, you know, what would make them more comfortable coming back to medical office buildings? And one of the answers that didn't surprise us, but one of the answers we heard loud and clear was not just telling us the things that you're doing in the buildings and you're wearing PPE and you are cleaning, but physically seeing someone in the lobby cleaning, um, cleaning the buildings, cleaning the common areas, elevator buttons, door handles, et cetera. So we'll talk a little bit more about that survey, but you know, those are the things that we've adjusted on our team to be very visible, very transparent, in the communication and the efforts that we're doing within our buildings. Yeah, I'd love to jump into that, Julie. I mean, how can we communicate to consumers that it's safe to enter and, and in, in some cases re-enter because a lot of people, you know, have put off care, right? So how do we get them comfortable? It's, it's a question that really um, puzzled me and why we started back in uh, July with a survey in Indiana to see what consumers were feeling. I had heard a lot of anecdotal examples of patients, you know, not uh, going to the hospital with heart attack symptoms. And, you know, I wanted to understand why that was and um, what it was going to take to get them feeling comfortable. So the results that we found in Indiana, and then when we did the survey for uh, for Doc Reed, um, really are similar across the country. And we boiled it down to five, um, you know, five key points. Uh, the first being consumers prefer strongly, like 75%, prefer to seek services not on a hospital campus. Um, I think that's important for us to think about from a strategic standpoint, especially as we're trying to bring patients back. If we have off-campus locations where medical office buildings and, and other facilities that are not on our main campus and we can ease people back into that setting, I think there's an opportunity. Um, as Mark mentioned, you know, consumers told us, we want to see what you're doing. Show, not tell. Um, just this this need to visibly see that precautions are being taken and that we're taking their safety very seriously. So I think that's gonna continue and, and will really contribute to getting people to come back. Um, consumers also want us to go above and beyond the requirements. Frankly, they look at you know, what the CDC and others have said and it's great, but if you can do more than that, um, we would really prefer, prefer you to go further. Um, and then when we're communicating to patients, the last two points really get to communication. One is physicians and nurses and clinical staff are the best way to communicate with patients that uh, it's safe to come back and um, you know what all you're doing to keep them safe. We found um, surprisingly um, 
uh, hospital CEOs were on the bottom of the list for folks that, uh, you know, should be out in front and giving these messages. In fact, um, consumers told us they'd rather hear from their local legislators than hospital CEOs, which I thought was very interesting. So um, think about who you're putting out in front. And then the final point is, to the extent you can, one-to-one -one communication is appreciated. So rather than, you know, just putting out broad notices, um, you know, broad marketing strategies, being able to send that email to your patient, kind of a one-on-one -on -one communication that, hey, these are the things we're doing. This is what you'll see. This is what you'll experience when you come into the building. I think consumers really like that, um, that knowing what they're going to face, kind of as Ryan discussed, you know, what's it going to be like when I come back to a healthcare facility? So um, that's the study in a nutshell, and, you know, we can talk more about it, and I'm happy to share uh, if folks want to dive into that um, outside of today, you know, reach out and let me know. Uh, I think it's helpful as you're thinking about real estate strategy and just getting people to come back to your medical office buildings. Well, and that's very interesting, Julie. I think one of the things that, um, you know, we've gotten some questions about is related to certifications and kind of using that as potentially as a way to say, you know, as a, maybe it's a communication device, maybe it's a um, sort of a check the box item, I don't know. But um, anybody on the panel have any experience with those sort of outside certifications that have come uh, sort of, you know, come to the market recently? Is there any validity to those? Is, are they worthwhile? Or is your money, you know, better spent elsewhere? Um, any thoughts on that? I can kick it off. Um, we, we haven't pursued any specific certifications. I mean, we have our um, employed infection preventionists and um, the relationship between that team and our, our real estate team is the strongest it's ever been. <laughs> um, they are meeting with our janitorial vendors um, looking at their scope and cleaning products, um, making sure they're appropriate. Um, and if there's ever an issue, um, they'll run over to a building and, and meet the, the real estate team to, to look at the issue. So um, other than that, um, certification wise, um, we've definitely been doing more um, test adjust balance reports from certified vendors that are capable of doing those to make sure we have proper air flows. Um, but Mark or Julie, I don't know if you're seeing anything else on the certification front. I think you described it really well. Um, yeah, there's a lot of groups obviously popping up now claiming to have the latest and greatest new certification and trying to, you know, monetize that. Um, but back to Ryan's initial point, I mean, for groups that have already been operating their buildings at a high level, um, we've already invested in the, the platforms to improve the uh, patient and physician experience in the buildings. And what COVID's really done and, and managing through this right now has improved the focus and communication of the, of the operations teams. Uh, so to, to Ryan's point again, we are communicating more and more frequently and sharing uh, data in real time from our systems about what we're doing um, for our work orders, for hours that people are in the building, screenings, tracking patient volumes. And these are systems that we had in place already uh, pre-COVID. But the focus has really been on increased communication transparency around the efforts that we are doing, both to our hospital partners and, and then ultimately to their patients. 
I would just add that our survey results really showed that consumers listen to the CDC more, um, the CDC and local health departments. So as these companies that do the building certifications have popped up, it's really been after we've done the survey, but I go back to, you know, consumers have certain people that they view as experts, um, you know, CDC, State Department of Health, your physicians, um, and then I think I'd spend my efforts, you know, making sure that what I'm doing is well communicated and visible and not necessarily putting a stamp on a building from an organization that consumers don't know anything about. Yeah, that makes sense. And I guess we haven't really gotten into another another question that we get a lot. I've heard from from you all so far today on, you know, communication and some of the protocols, which to my mind, don't co cost a lot or don't have to cost a lot. Are there any sort of capital outlays that have been necessitated um, in light of COVID that any of you have seen or recommend? Yeah, I, I can jump in and, and help here. So from a capital outlay perspective, I mean, certainly we're, we've evaluated our entire portfolio for mechanical systems where we can improve fresh airflow we haven't gone in and wholesale made changes to existing facilities where there's new development facilities. We can, of course, you know, pick things as we're, as we're in the projects now with kind of COVID implications in mind, but we haven't gone back to, to retrofit, you know, an entire mechanical system or anything like that. Um, but where we are investing our money now is in, when we're doing common area renovations, we're putting in touchless sinks or automated doors, um, sometimes elevators that you know you can have just one call button instead of pressing the button um, on every floor so we're looking at that and then clearly on tenant improvements um, as we're as we're renewing leases and offering some capital to freshen up the space we are looking sometimes at the design flow of you know how the office actually lays out if there's one way in and then a separate exit out so it's one-way traffic some practices are considering not having as large a waiting rooms and taking patients straight back to the exam room and wait there so that they're separated. Um, but then there's other systems that want larger waiting rooms to separate everyone. So it's you know kind of customized by, by practice there. But where we are investing our money again is more on the TI and the remodels um, as they're coming uh, up in our portfolio. But we haven't gone back to wholesale any big, big HVAC changes yet. Yeah, very similar opinion um, as Mark. We have um, design guidelines for our primary care and our specialty care clinics. Um, so our architects have been revisiting those um, and having some conversations around some of the things um, that Mark mentioned. So things we're looking at are, you know, should we have power and water hookups in our parking lots or maybe a bigger plot of land? Um, should we need to use our our parking lots to put up tents in the future? Uh, should we have bigger entrance canopies if we have lines going out our front door? Um, the automated door hardware and hands-free faucets for patients that Mark mentioned. Um, what do we do in our exam rooms um, to increase our telehealth capabilities? Um, do we have some extra negative pressure exam rooms near a separate entrance? And um, where should the doctor's workstations be um, for those telemedicine visits? Should they be in the clinic or, or elsewhere? Um, 
just some things we're thinking about. Ryan, I want to follow up on one point you made, um, you know, talking about sort of preparing the parking lot as another potential site of care. Um, I, I suppose that's easier when it's owned real estate, right? Um, I mean, have we, do, do, has that been successful on the tenant side as well and saying, hey, you know, landlord, um, you've got to do something here or, you know, it's, it's not probably, it's not really a, a TI issue as much as a, you know, facilities issue and, and, and amenity, if you will. Um, has, has anyone seen that on the tenant side? Yeah, so we own about half our properties and lease about half. Um, and I was just going to say we do have tents set up. We are the, the single occupant in the, the MLB, which helps. Um, but we're very thankful to our landlords. Um, it's really come down to just a transparent conversation. Hey, who are the vendors? Um, show us some diagrams, how traffic flow is going to work. What electrical systems are you going to tap? How are you going to restore it? Um, yeah, similar. I mean, again, it goes back to that collaboration with the, with our hospital partners and how quickly can we, you know, help them set up something in the parking lots. Initially, it was it was testing sites in the parking lots, but most recently in the last week or two, we've been having conversations about vaccine administration and drive-through vaccine sites um, through larger tents. And some of the discussions get interesting, and maybe you'll appreciate this from a legal, you know, kind of perspective is, you know, some of those sites we own the buildings fee simple, but in others we ground lease them. So the hospital, you know, may already own the land and we own the improvements of the building. Um, but in those cases, the hospital has decided on their campus to set up the tent and we just need to, you know, kind of over communicate on where are we going to displace some of that parking in those cars? Because a few of our leases do have minimum parking requirements in the leases. And it just creates some challenges operationally and patient flow and you know, and then again, for our property managers to be able to communicate that to everyone in a multi-tenant building, um, those tenants that are not hospital tenants. So um, ground leases have, uh, have been being reviewed a little bit more as we've set up testing sites and, um, and now vaccine locations. Yeah, I wanna um, delve a little bit more into this idea of transparency. And Julie, you you mentioned this earlier. Mark, you echoed it as well. Can we talk a little bit about, you know, how do we serve our customers, whether at, you know, patients or Mark, in your case, hospitals maybe, um, by 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 providing more transparent data. How is that, have you seen that play out? Well, I think in a couple of the practices um, that I've worked with, I'm seeing the the providers just be more, uh, much more communicative, more regular communication, whether that's, you know, newsletters, um, quick emails. Um, got one, one office that's done a great job putting out, um, you know, videos where the, the provider will you know, kind of talk about what's the latest protocol in the office, what's changed since the last time you were in. I think it's just a, an, an extra attention to communicating things that we think that probably people already know. Um, it's, it's that mindset of over-communicating. Um, so that's really what I've seen with most of the, the medical offices that I've worked with. I don't know, Mark, Ryan, you guys are seeing something different. We, we've had in place before COVID, which really helped us excel, you know, in our customer service to the hospital partners during COVID, a work order management system platform. 
um, where we could track and measure and monitor all requests that we're getting from our from our partners. So we could track, you know, how long till a work order is uh, is dispatched, how long till it's completed. And then one of the most useful tools is at the end of the work order, we can we can get a rating on how well we did. So kind of a thumbs up, thumb sideways, or thumbs down, just like an Uber, you get a four star, five star Uber rating. You know, we get real time feedback on how well we're doing on our on our work orders. Um, and then in that system, we can also track um, janitorial schedules, engineering hour schedules. And so we have all this data and we put together what we call stewardship report to our hospital systems. We share with them on a very routine basis, all this data about here's how we're doing on work orders. Here's our customer service to the physicians, um, their, their you know, rating of our work order and our teams, uh, and then how quickly we're responding to them. And then also, you know, the, showing them that we're thinking about adjusting janitorial hours or engineering hours to take care of the team's health, but yet also servicing the building. Those communication, you know, back and forth has just really gone a long way to keep these buildings open and then ultimately keep the, the providers and the patients safe in the buildings. Thanks. One other, I want to kind of switch gears a little bit because one topic that we talked about on our prep calls was how taking the COVID response seriously when it comes to property management can actually enhance business. Um, it could be an opportunity, and of course, I don't mean to make light of a of a very dire situation, but how can we, from a business perspective, um, enhance business in, in our COVID response? And maybe, Julie, I know you talked about this before a little bit. I think it's, um, I mean, it, it does feel somewhat awkward talking about, you know, trying to grow and expand market share in, in this environment. And at the same time, I think this is the kind of environment where there are opportunities to grow market share. Um, you know, things that I, think are important are looking at your portfolio. And if you've got assets that are not on campus, figuring out how to, how to maybe drive more service there. Um, I think consumers now like convenience, um, smaller offices. Um, it's just that, that big campus setting that I think people are a little bit leery of. So looking at, um, you know, looking at where you're providing services, if you can put services together in convenient um, locations and convenient packages so that people can do multiple things in one trip, I think that's a good opportunity right now. And, um, and then just you know, from a general standpoint, I think as you're kind of surveying your competitive landscape, um, there are a number of you know, people that you're probably competing with that are um, so focused on on just responding to COVID because they've had to be. So if you're not in that situation, or even if you are, maybe pulling out a small group of people who um, you ask to focus on the future and think about, you know, where are the opportunities that we have? If, if everyone is thinking about today and no one's thinking about tomorrow, um, you know, I, I find that to be a bit dangerous from a strategic standpoint. So. Um, I like the idea of having a, you know, having at least a small team of people that are thinking about the future and where those growth opportunities are because they are there. Yeah, that's really awesome. I think that's one of the trends that we've seen 
um, accelerated over the last year is the shift to the off-campus buildings. I mean, the, the reimbursement and technology and all those enhancements were already um, driving more and more care off-campus, but COVID continued to accelerate that as consumers didn't want to go to the big box hospital where the COVID patients are being taken care of. They'd rather get their care closer to home in a clean and safe environment. So I think Julie's spot on with her with her comments about shifting care to the uh, to the off-campus setting there. Um, in fact, you know, 72% of new construction starts last year were in off-campus buildings. And I, I think that, you know, the historically healthcare has been very hospital-centric. And in the future, as Julie just said, it's going to be very consumer-centric. And uh, it's going to be more about the patients and their preferences, how to get care in a, in a clean, safe, convenient way um, is, is the way to be thinking about healthcare in the future. Which may or may not be in an exam room in a medical office building. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Ryan, could you elaborate on that? Because I think, um, you know, from the hospital perspective, I think, uh, well, we just we just heard, you know, a lot of people are not wanting to come on campus or they're not, you know, obviously there are certain conditions where you have to, but for an office visit, you know, any thought from the hospital perspective in terms of how you're responding or plan to, to respond in the, in the year ahead? Yeah, I just there's lots of interesting conversations that I'm sure everyone's asking throughout the industry, but um, with the care that's being delivered in a car out in front of an MOB, what does it mean to look at a look at a car as an exam room? Um, what's telemedicine do, and what's care? What's an exam room look like if it's in a patient's home? Um, lots of interesting questions and conversations around that. Well, I'd like to um, wrap up our discussion with exploring kind of the future horizon and what is what have we learned? What what does this new normal look like? Um, what will we what will we keep and what will we discard? Obviously, we can't see the future. Um, any thoughts on that and on on what we've learned and um, and, and and where we go from here? I think um, some big questions in, in my role, um, we oversee all of our leasing, buying, selling. Um, most of our uh, office employees are remote today and plan to be through summer. Um, I don't know of many medical office buildings that have formally closed, um, at least not for very long throughout this process, but we did close a lot of our, our office buildings. So we foresee a need for much less office space or a different type of office space where nobody has a reserved desk or cubicle and we deploy a reservation system where you can reserve a, a cubicle or meeting room depending on the type of work you need to do in the city that you're currently located. Um, so um, we're identifying you know, which caregivers are, are fully remote moving forward. Um, my VP recently told me I'm one of those. So I'm a, a guinea pig in this effort. Um, and who needs to be in front of a desk uh, five days per week and be assigned a cubicle and, and who's in between. Um, and then on the, the medical office side, it's what is the impact of telemedicine? Does that allow us to see more patients um, and postpone the next new building a few years because um, we have some more capacity? Um, do we need a different type of space for telemedicine? Um, some of the questions we're asking. 
I think it's going to, you know, I think it's going to be a mix um, in some ways. We, I, I think a lot about the fact that people are pretty quick to forget things. And I, I wonder, you know, I wonder what the lasting impact on all of our psyches will be after living through a pandemic. Will it change our behavior forever? Or will it change our behavior for a while? And I think there are probably some things that may change um, forever. I think telemedicine is something that um, has worked well in certain instances, but there are a number of practices and specialties. Uh, I think about obstetrics as an example um, and a lot of women's health uh, where it's just not practical to, to do a lot of that care via telehealth. So I think we're, to Ryan's point, we're gonna have to live in both spaces. We're gonna have to uh, figure out, maybe we can delay, you know, delay some additions that we thought we might need to do some expansions. And I also think it's gonna be interesting to watch, um, you know, what happens kind of on the ambulatory surgery side, um, you know, with changes to Medicare and other insurance companies being willing to pay more um, and, and cover more services in that setting and providers, I think, starting to feel that the quality is, um, is comparable. Um, I think we're gonna see a lot of activity in the ASC space going forward, but it'll, it'll be, uh, It'll be interesting to see. I, I wish we knew for sure, but I think we're all guessing. I love the optimistic question about thinking about what's coming in the future, especially given how you know, challenging this year has been. But the truth of the matter is that I mean, we are still in a crisis and there's still a lot of COVID care being developed. And it's really important for us to remain disciplined uh, in our operations of the facilities today in what this you know, new normal is that we're talking about. It's very easy to get COVID fatigue and you know not wear your mask or start settling into the kind of new normal of your management hours and things like that, your management tasks. But it's really important to to continue to stay disciplined um, for the you know for for the very foreseeable future. And then further further into the future to kind of answer your question though, I, I talking to a, a CFO yesterday of a hospital system. You know, one of the comments he made that really kind of resonated with me is that they shifted more of their surgery procedures off campus to ASCs, um, you know, again, to save capacity in the hospital system. And those procedures will probably now for a very long time continue to be located in that off-campus surgery centers. There's a lot of opportunities for off-campus surgery centers going forward in the future. And procedures that have shifted away from the campus, off-campus will, will continue to stay there into the future. Great. Well, um, that is the extent of, of my prepared questions here. Um, Julie, Ryan, Mark, thank you so much for your insight. Um, and, and thank you to our audience for, for joining us. Um, we will be sending out um, contact information to the extent that anybody has questions that um, didn't get answered today and you'd like to continue the conversation. We have our strategy discussion coming up on February 25th, which I think will be an interesting follow-up to this one.